Welcome to the Vale Christian Church Podcast. In this fourth message from the Great Mystery series titled Why Jesus, Pastor Ben Pitney is teaching from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. At Vale Christian Church, we believe in training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. So we're in this really great series that is uh, journeying through the book of Colossians, this really great letter. And we know that Paul uses this awesome language called, uh, he, he, he refers to it as this great mystery or this mystery. And he uses this word mystery um, uh, several different times and in different ways. He actually talks about marriage as a great mystery as well. But uh, this mystery that he's talking about with these people in this letter is, is pretty cool. He says, you know, this mystery, it's been hidden for generations, for ages, but now it's not to be hidden anymore. It's revealed and it's here, supposed to be unveiled or revealed. This great mystery is Christ in you, Christ in you. And so we know that that's kind of a, a, a running theme throughout a bunch of his letters as he does this uh, this great communication this, as he talks about this mystery and how it's supposed to be unleashed, so to speak, in the life of the church and of Christ followers. So right now, Paul, uh, in, in this letter, as he's writing it, he's writing it from prison or jail or house arrest. It's nothing like maybe it would be um, in our time, in the 21st century. It'd be, I don't know, not that good, right? So He's been, everywhere he goes, he preaches, he, pre- he presents the gospel, he shares the gospel, right? He really brings it, and we see people coming to Christ, but he's also getting run out of town uh, everywhere he goes. You know, he's getting beat um, and persecuted quite a bit and thrown in jail periodically. So he writes this letter from that position to the Colossians. While he's doing this, though, he's got his guys around him. He's training his guys. I, uh, I talk about this sometimes uh, amongst Christ followers. I think every Christ follower ought to have his guys. And I say that in sort of a generic or general fashion, ladies. You've got to have your, your ladies, your women around you as well. But I think everybody's got to have their guys. You know what I mean? You've got to have your people that you're investing in. I, I think you should have at least five. I'm always asking our team and our staff, who are your guys? Who are you guys? If you don't have five people that you're investing in, that you're mentoring, that you're leading, that you're reproducing yourself in as a Christ follower, I think you're really missing it because that's where this power is. So Paul has more than five guys, but he's got a lot of guys. You know them. He talks about uh, Timothy a lot as being uh, one of his guys, right? And Silas, right? Even Barnabas at some point, even though Paul was maybe one of Barnabas' guys at the beginning, right? They pull people in all the time. There's a guy named Epaphras. He's one of his guys and he trains him and equips him. And he says, hey, I'm going to go over here and preach. I'm going to send you to the Lycus Valley. And that's where I want you to present the gospel and start, just do what I do. So he's trained him and equipped him and he's launched him over there. So Epaphras preaches the gospel and people come to Christ. In the city of Colossae, where, uh, where this letter is addressed, and that's, that's the church that exists there. People have come to Christ and now they're a church. There's a church or churches, all right? So Epaphras has been there. People have come to Christ and good things are happening. So now he's coming back to Paul to give him a report. 
And by and large, his report is good. Hey, things are healthy. People are growing and people have come to Jesus. There's some things that we should be concerned about, just like always. Remember, every letter that Paul writes in the New Testament, it's to a specific church about specific issues. Specific church just like us. So it's a church just like us. It's got stuff going on it. So there's so many things that we can learn by reading his letter. So Paul has never been there with these people. He doesn't even know these people, but he, um, because of Epaphras and this whole reputation and all of these good things, right? This is the way he equips and trains and encourages people, disciples and mentors the church and challenges them and continues to teach them. So when we draw the truth out of the text, that's what our goal is. When we read the text and um, then we want to say, all right, what does this have to do with me? How does this apply to me? And there's all kinds of really great things here. In the culture we live, I think one of the places that it intersects for me in this, um, um, this morning is that we're all looking for the meaning of life, aren't we? I mean, so many people that I interact with, they're, they're just, they just want some answers about life and how it's all connected and what it's all about. Where's it all headed? Where are the answers? What's the meaning of life? I mean, we want to know about this person, Jesus. What's he got to do with anything? You're asking me to swear allegiance to Jesus. He claims to be the king. And in the New Testament, people are wrestling with all of that as well. In the Old Testament, people are wrestling with it. I'm going to put up this passage of scripture, um, King Solomon, David, King David's son, King Solomon. He's uh, referred to as the, maybe the wisest man ever, right? He's got all this wisdom that God uh, has given him, right? All this knowledge. And look what he says, right at the beginning of his journal, Ecclesiastes, he writes this, he says, the words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, futile, futile, laments the teacher, absolutely futile. It's meaningless. He's basically saying, it's meaningless. It's all meaningless. Absolutely. Everything. What benefit do people get from all the effort which they expend on earth? A generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains the same through the ages. The sun rises and the sun sets. It hurries away to a place from which it rises again. The wind goes to the south. And circles around to the north, around and around the wind goes, and on its rounds it returns. All the streams flow to the sea, but the sea's not full. There's still room, right? And to the place where the streams flow, there will, there will, or they will flow again. All this monotony is tiresome. No one can bear to describe it. The eyes never satisfied with seeing, nor the ear uh, ever content with hearing. What exists now is what will be, and what has been, uh, what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing truly new on earth. Sounds a little depressing. I think it's just depressing because he's just straight up telling the truth. I'm searching. I'm looking for the meaning of life. And you know what? He, in, in this journal through the, the, the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a journal of him just unloading on doing everything, trying anything and everything to find the meaning of life. And he does. I mean, he, he just the description of all of his efforts towards really good food. It's unbelievable. Really great wine. I mean, he took it to its unbelievable fullest extent. Wealth, riches, architecture, art, sex, drugs, rock and roll. He just explores everything. And I mean, he takes it over the top, everything that he does. 
It's, it's crazy how far he goes to try to find the meaning of life. You know, as crazy as it sounds, I feel like it happens all the time in our culture. I think the things that people do to find happiness, to find meaning, to find fulfillment, to find purpose, the thi- to the extent that people, just the things that they go through in order to find the meaning of life is unbelievable. Well, Paul writes in this place, in Colossians chapter one, we're at verse 15. I think that this is where you get the answers. I think the best answers to all of our questions are right here. It's actually a deep piece of doctrine for the church, right? The answer to the questions come in understanding the doctrine of Christ. That's what we're going to look at. The doctrine of Christ. Uh, if you want to put it in academic terms, it's called Christology, all right? Or the person, the nature, and the role of Christ. I don't want to be too academic today, but this is a, this is a really vital, important piece of scripture today. Because Actually, what you find is that what Solomon, where he says, it's all futile, it's all meaningless, there's nothing new, he's actually totally wrong. He pretty much admits that at the end of his journal, but at the beginning, I mean, if you're to just go by what he says there, he's totally off, he's totally wrong. Because the answer to the questions, they come in the understanding of Jesus, all right? There's a unique event in history, in human history, that gives everything else meaning, an invasion of human history by God himself in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And without understanding that, I think you're just right there where Solomon is, where it's like, what's the meaning? I mean, what's this all about? And personally, if it's not about Jesus, then all the energy and all the effort and all the reason for being here and the band and, you know, putting this all together and everything that we do around here, it's all... It is totally meaningless. It, it, it absolutely is. You might as well just be at Disneyland with everybody else on Rodeo Break Weekend. I'm really excited that you guys are here too. I think we should take a break and go to Disneyland. I'm not, I'm not going, but you can. <laughs> okay, let's take a look. Let's take a look. Chapter one, verse 15. Because here it comes understanding the doctrine of Christ, understanding who Jesus is. This is everything right here. And I'm telling you, this is a place in scripture. This is, this is kind of crazy. If I describe it like this, I think you'll get it eventually here because it took me a while to get this. This is a place where it's almost like where you want to take your shoes off when you read it. Like this is holy ground. It's really magnificent. I'm going to do my best to unpack it. Verse 15, chapter one of Colossians says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For all things in heaven and on earth were created by him. All things, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions, whether principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He himself is before all things and all things are held together in him. He is the head of the body, the church, as well as the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. What does that mean? We'll talk about it. So that he himself may become first in all things. For God was pleased to have 
all his fullness dwell in the Son, and through him to reconcile all things to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And you were at one time strangers and enemies in your minds and as, as exposed through your evil deeds. I mean, you know, by the way you act. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through death to present you holy without blemish and blameless before him if indeed you remain in faith or in the faith established and firm without shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has also been preached in all creation under heaven and I, Paul, have become its servant. Now, this is an unbelievable declaration of the unique place of the Lord Jesus. And it comes right after a prayer. Last week, we looked at this prayer that Paul prays for the people that he's heard. You know, he's heard some things from Epaphras, and it's mostly good stuff. But there are things that, you know, he could be, uh, should be concerned about. And it happens all the time in church. We have wrong thinking about all kinds of things sometimes. We get it from all kinds of ways. So it can creep into any place. So Paul recognizes that there's dangers. And so what he does is he prays for these people and their future and what's gonna happen in the future. And then he, that's what he does in verses nine through 14. And then he just breaks out into this unbelievable word of praise of the Lord, the one who will meet the needs of people who pray to him. And he is saying that this is, the one who will answer prayer, Jesus. Have you ever felt overwhelmed in life? I don't get overwhelmed often, but I can. Maybe, maybe you've been overwhelmed. Maybe you're feeling overwhelmed right now. I don't know. But uh, a lot of times, uh, I think the demands of emotional struggles can overwhelm us. It's no secret that guys that, that, you know, spend time in Afghanistan, you know, guys like we're talking about Nick and others who come and go and they, you know, uh, we have a lot of that happen, happening in our area because of the Air Force, right? They, they, those guys come back and after the stuff that they deal with and walk through and, you know, they come back and it's almost overwhelming to come back into a sense of normality and what's going on, right? And, and so th there's a lot of emotional uh, difficulty that happens. It doesn't happen to everybody and it doesn't mean that you're broken or anything like that. It's just part of humanity. We have emotional struggles, painful things, difficult relationships. You ever dealt with a difficult relationship? I mean, there's nothing can wreck my day like, you know, by somebody being difficult. It just is hard, Right? or deterioration of your physical health. Man, economic turmoil, money problems cause more fusses in marriages and families than almost anything. Or whatever you have to face in life, the one who hears us cry and, and understands and cares for us is this one, the master of everything. That's who Paul's talking about right here. Don't lose sight of that. Let's talk about the image of the invisible God. This is a huge thing that I don't think we get our arms around or try to get our arms around enough. There's, there's some important things that we're gonna 
that we can distill out of the description of Jesus. There's a huge description of Jesus. Don't lose sight of that. In verse 15, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Think this through just for a minute. The triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And don't lose sight that God the Father is the architect of all creation. God the Son, Jesus, he's the creator, the implementer of the architecture. And God the Holy Spirit has a role as well of transformation and change. He provides all the power. All right, so the triune God here, omnipotent, infallible, eternal God is not visible. That's what he's saying. He's not visible. In order for anything to be visible, God had to create matter and the senses needed to understand light and interact in other ways with the material world. And God existed before all things ever even came into being. He's beyond. God is beyond visibility. That's what he's saying. So in order for people like us who've been made with finite physical bodies and lives, in order for us to be able to know him, he had to make himself visible. The son of God became a baby born in a stable. He grew up as a man who taught, laughed, and his heart was broken. The word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth, John 1, 14. That's Jesus. So we know, we know this or have some sense of this. Now, you may have done some things or know of people who've tried some things to know God. So many just know about God, but they don't truly know God. We try to find God's origin. We want to answer the problem raised in Ecclesiastes, the class, Ecclesiastes that life is meaningless, circular, nothing amounts to anything or, or accounts for anything. We've all tried to find God, tried to find meaning in life. We have this great hunger ultimately to find our purpose in our creator. And yet it is not, or he is not far away. He has made himself known in Christ, the image of the visible God. Let's talk about Lord of creation. This is the other thing that we need to distill here. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. How many times did you write that in there? How many times did you catch that? The firstborn over all creation. Underline firstborn. That needs to be explained. Paul does not mean this. And it's hard for us because in the 21st century, there's not this, if you're born first, you know, it doesn't have the same sort of meaning as it does in the first century right here. So Paul does not mean that Jesus was created. He doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean that Jesus was born into creation as the first of a series of like beings. It's very clear as you read the rest of this that he is the creator, the one through, through whom everything was made. Jesus was through whom everything was made. So the term firstborn has to do with inheritance. This is the part that we struggle with, inheritance. Because in the 21st century, if your parents die and they have a lot of money, we want it to be divided up all equally amongst us, right? In your, in your household, all the siblings and everybody in the will, it should be divided up equally. In the first century, you get to just put that out of your mind. That's not the way it is. I'm not saying it's right, wrong, and uh, I'm not saying anything. Let's just go to the first century and put it in the context because this is what Paul means by firstborn over all creation. He's talking about inheritance. So the term 
firstborn has to do with inheritance in the ancient world and other cultures in the family. The one who stands to inherit everything is the firstborn, absolutely different from everybody else in that respect. It doesn't make any difference if a child, second, third, fourth, etc. all of them lose out. The firstborn in the family inherits the property. He's the master of all the stuff, Okay. That's the point here, saying he is firstborn is a way of declaring Jesus' lordship. That's what it means. So that's what's really important. He is the firstborn of creation, and that means he is the master of creation. It is all his. There are some important time references in saying that Jesus is the firstborn or lord or master of creation. It says, look at verse 16, look. For all things in heaven and on earth were created in him, all things, whether visible or invisible. So he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If we're imagining a timeline, which actually doesn't make sense, but just for the sake of argument, think of this. You would find him, Jesus, before the existence of anything else, including time itself, He began creation, and it says in verse 17, he himself is before all things, and all things are held together in him. So, think of it like this. Our galaxy is uncountable light years in size. Our galaxy, what is our galaxy? Anybody know the name of it? The Milky Way. Some kid last hour said Snickers. That's the Milky Way, okay? Uncountable light years in size and immense, extraordinary expanse of the stars, right? Extraordinary. And it's just one of millions of galaxies that exist at unimaginable distances from each other, making up the whole cosmos. We can't even see to the end of it. Making up the entire cosmos. Jesus holds Together, the cosmos, everything that came into being in his initiation. Then in verse 16, look at verse 16 again. All things were created through him and for him. So he's the one for whom all things are for. He is at the end, so he is at the beginning, during, and at the end of everything that has been created. It was made for him and by him, and it is entirely sustained by him. He is the firstborn of the master because he is the owner, creator, the sustainer of everything that exists. So now when you look into your children's eyes and you say, listen, it's not about you. You can go right here and prove it. I love that. This makes it completely understandable. It's not about you. It's not about me. I mean, it truly isn't. You can already start right there, right? Oh my gosh. Have you ever seen or been a part of a monsoon storm in the summer? I really love that time of year. Do you like the monsoons? Because it could just be perfectly light out. It could be 105 degrees. And then all of a sudden, right? Not that long ago, it's about two years now, um, I was in our house and it was kind of in the late afternoon. That's when the monsoons kind of swell up. It's like about four o'clock, you can just count it, right? And, and, and it was not raining. It was actually a little bit sunny out. And I just, 
he heard this unbelievable rushing sound like a like like you're at the airport and you can hear those jets before they take off it just sounded like that i'm like what is happening what is landing in my backyard is there a spaceship what is going on right just and, and i go outside and i look over the backyard fence and there's a wash out there behind our fence and the wash has got like four feet of water just like what happened it's not even raining well it, it was raining you know like two, three, four miles up the road, like, and it just showed up down here at my house, right? And, and my neighbor had just, had just done this crazy thing. So he has this really beautiful landscape. He spent all this money on it, and uh, he kind of lives back there, you know, and our houses are kind of in this neighborhood where everybody lives on like an acre of land. So everybody's a little further apart. And it's, it's really beautiful. It's really nice. And he's done some things with his landscape. So he brought in this huge truck of boulders, just big old boulders, because he wanted to, he wanted to protect his landscaping. So he piled it all up and stacked it all up and kind of bermed it all around, right? We do that a lot in Tucson with rocks. And he spent like days just putting this all in there. And after that big rush of water, that tons and tons of rocks, you could go down just about a quarter of a mile down on Speedway, and that's where they all were. Just took them all like nothing, just put them all down there, strewn them all over the place. I mean, big, heavy rocks. Just put them all down there. Talk about meaningless and futile, right? Look. You've seen that happen? A microburst just tear something up, right? You've seen the haboob? I love that. I love trying to describe that to people. Just the power of that single storm in a single region of this planet is shaking to think about the power, right? And yet, that's just one evidence of the kind of power that's under the authority of the Lord of all. Make it real, look at it. Can we talk about invisible and invisible just real quick? There's a series of pairs of words here that highlight important thinking, right? Look at verse 16. Look at the series of pairs of words. Jesus is Lord of all things, whether visible and invisible. There's a pair. Whether thrones or dominions, there's another one. Whether principalities or powers. The created world is not just what we can understand with our senses, there are invisible things that have been created as well. The terms thrones, principalities, or powers indicates actually types of angels. Ancient teachers described types of angels and thrones, for example, was one order of angels. So anyway, Paul agrees that there are invisible beings, very powerful forces that only people who understand the scriptures can even be certain exist. And Jesus is Lord over all of them as well. We don't need to camp out on a lot of these things, but listen, Jesus is Lord over human history, the rise and fall of empires and growth and disintegration of countries and cultures. It's all under his control, all of it. And the things that we can't explain sometimes and that we can't seize, it's certainly true that there are battles going on in the heavenly realms that the things are permitted to happen that we just don't understand and can't see that Jesus is Lord over. He's Lord over what is unseen. 
There's an unseen world and there's a visible world. And both are powerful, real, and important. And Jesus stands on each side of them both, the visible and the invisible, as master, the firstborn Lord of all. Mm. See how come you just, this is kind of one of those things where it's like you approach this, the posture of your heart is, you know, without your shoes on kind of thing, right? Head of the church, this is something that's not understood completely either. Head of the church, that's what we're told of Christ and that he's the head of the body, the church. Christ followers are the church. Church isn't a place you go to. Church is Christ followers. When it's a place you go to, then you can just, you know, it just becomes this vacuum cleaner attachment. You just put it on and take it off when you need it, right? That's not the church. Jesus is head of the church. Verse 18 and 19 say, he's the head of the body, the church, as well as the beginning, and here we go, the firstborn from among the dead, so that he himself may become first in all things. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the Son, all of God in the Son. God is, uh, the Son of God is fully God. So the term firstborn here, it's the same one used earlier. He is the heir, the Lord, of all that which is from the dead. Now, what? Before you give your life to Christ, before you are saved, you are, you're dead. You're dead in your trespasses. The scriptures, we're dead in our sin. We're dead. Without Jesus, we're dead. So think of this. Without Jesus, there is just death. And this is really important here. There's a new world being created in the same way that he, that it, that it was at the beginning of the cosmos. Jesus created all of that. He is at the beginning point of the new creation and the new creation is coming from the dead out of the first creation that Paul tells us in Romans 8.20 was subjected to futility, death and decay because of human sinfulness and rebellion against God. So when you are, when you give your life to Jesus, when you transform your life to, uh, or excuse me, when you surrender your life to Jesus, he transforms your life, he makes you new. You are rebirth, renewed, recreated. And if you stop and think about the implications of what's being said here, this is remarkable. There have been two great creative works initiated by God in all of time and beyond time. He made everything and now he is remaking things through Jesus. There will be a new heaven, a new earth. We know that to be true, right? He's the beginning of the new creation by winning people to himself, this body of his, of the household of faith, the church, a family of families, people everywhere in the world who know him are being made for the new heaven and the new earth. That's all coming. We're right near the beginning and there's a lot more to happen still. His body, the church, is the beginning of the recreation of everything. It's like getting to invest in the beginning of a company. Linda and I, we've been in Tucson actually a long time, but before we came to Tucson, we lived in, my family, we lived in San Jose, Northern California in the Bay Area, the Silicon Valley, right? Working at a church, I'm a pastor, we're starving to death, we're living in this really expensive place. <laughs> and uh, it's, we were super happy, our family's really young, Linda needed to go get a job, 
right? So she'd been working here and there part-time. The kids are just getting old enough to where they're in school, so she goes and looking for a job. So she got this interview at a really sweet little company we didn't know anything about, though, at the beginning. It was just like just at the beginning stages, just kind of come on the scene. You know, the Internet is just sort of kind of just started coming around. I got one of those cell phones that you pull up the antenna, like that, right? She takes this interview with a company called eBay. And, and she comes home, and she says, yeah, I think it went pretty good. I don't know, you know. And I'm like, what, what is this? She says, it's called eBay. I'm like, what? It's eBay? What is eBay? Says, oh, it's this new dot-com company. And she starts explaining what they do. And I said, so it's basically like a swap meet on the Internet, right? You put stuff on there, and you sell it. You know, and we don't know anything about it. Can you imagine at the beginning? I mean, now we know what eBay is, but, you know, so, so she had a couple of opportunities to work there, and there's all these 20-year-olds, and it's a dot-com, where we're like, ah, uh, and so she took a job at another place. And it was a nice, it was a nice company. It was called Telepost, and it was another dot-com, really great communications company. And for the first time in her life, we got to go on vacation because Linda was making a lot more money than me, and, and uh, it, it was just a sweet time in our life. But, you know, that company was really great, lasted about four years, and then they just, and eBay bought Telepost. <laughs> Can you imagine at the beginning of Amazon? I remember when Amazon was like, what? Or Google, eBay, all those things. See, the church is right there. Apple. Apple. I remember having an Apple computer and people going, this is dumb. And me going, no, you're... Uh, it's the only thing I've been right about, I feel like. <laughs> like, no, no, Apple's going to take over the world. And it has, and just there, all, the, all the Windows people just kind of are like uh, in denial. I'm just kidding you. I'm just kidding you. See, listen. I think that we value too little what it means to be a Christ follower, to be a part of the household of faith, a family of families, the church. We get caught up too much with the things of this world that are essentially meaningless. And in fact, that we're a part, we are a part of a community, a relationship to the Lord. And it, and it, and it seems uninteresting, but it's at the beginning we're just at the beginning. It's a magnificent, unbelievable design by God that Christ is the head of. And it's, it's a magnificent layout of things. We underestimate what it's like and what, how valuable the beginning is and where it's all headed. Do you understand? Can we talk about reconcile? being reconciled to himself because that's the last thing that's kind of highlighted in this description of Christ in verse 20. Look at verse 20, that through him, he's going to reconcile all things. He's gonna make all things right. It's really important for us to remember that in all the work of the Lord coming to earth and imagine, imagining the invisible God and he's dealing with a world in rebellion against him. His creative work of giving life to us, beginning 
a new creation with men and women like us cost him his life. It says in verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the Son and through him to reconcile all things to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. We just lose sight of that. I tried my best to influence when we built this building the ability uh, somehow in our architecture in some way to help us not lose sight of that. There's a 27-foot cross out there that stands. When you stand next to it, I'm, I'm in awe of it because I don't want anybody to forget just what this means right here, reconciling all things to himself. This is personal now, right? The language shifts from no longer exalting the language. You know, it's not exalted language of the heavens and the cosmos before and after its existence of angels under the control of the master of everything. This is the language of redemption and it's about you and me now. We were formerly alienated in our minds and, and lost in our sin and in our hostility. We were self-serving, crueler than we ever want to admit, blown about by our passions. Neither inwardly or outwardly did we deserve his attention or his care. And yet he came in a body made of flesh and in the blood that stained the cross, he reconciled us to himself. Man. And it says he will present us before his father, holy, blameless, beyond reproach, without a single mark against us, without even a memory of what we've done to deserve death, cleansed, clean, pure, righteous, presented as an amazing instrument to reflect the glory of God at enormous cost, we will be reconciled to God. That is unbelievable. That's the enormous cost. And he brings it right there. So I love asking this question, what has this got to do with me? Can you think of anything that this has to do with regarding you and me? Number one, I want to point out there's an if clause that comes next when you read it. There's an if clause at the end of the text in verse 23. If indeed you remain in the faith, established and firm without shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. The idea here is not that and, and this takes just a little bit, all right? You can't just go over this and just first pass, you, you, you miss it. But the idea here is not that there is any chance that you won't continue in your faith if you are a Christ follower. That's not what he's trying to say. There isn't really any question of that. He expects us to continue in faith. So what's he trying to say? What he is doing is he's reminding us that when we see ourselves continue, even at some surprise to ourselves sometimes, that's evidence that we really are Christ followers. I mean, we're going to have doubts and we're going to have struggles. You find yourself at times wanting to throw off the Christian life when we were presented with other opportunities. I mean, there's things that come along that make you want to trade it in, I'm certain, and go, ugh. We find ourselves thinking, I'd like to set aside this stuff for a little bit, and we get all selfish. At one point in John chapter 6, Jesus is teaching some really difficult things. And 
John captures it so well. Jesus is talking about being the bread of life. And he's, you know, he's fed 5,000. He's done all these miraculous things. And he's got a lot of disciples. He's got a lot of followers. And in John chapter 6, what happens is he's teaching these hard things. And he's saying, look, I'm the bread. You got to eat me. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to give you true life. He, he even goes back and he says, you know, in, in the Old Testament, they had the manna and that bread. And that was great. But those people are dead. You want to live? You got to feed on me. And it's really a difficult thing for people to get their arms around and understand, right? People are struggling with it. So much so that when he does, in John chapter 6, a whole bunch of people just walk away. All of the, a lot of his disciples walk away. They say, you know, this is, I don't know, I, 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 this is too much. And they walk away, all right? Now, at one point as he's doing this, right, at the end of John chapter 6, Jesus turns to his guys, his disciples, and he says, are you going to leave too? And an amazing thing happens here. Peter had a really interesting answer. It's not very Peter-like. Because normally, the way it would go, if I'm trying to describe what he would say, if I didn't know the story, I I would think he would say, oh no, Lord, we would never think of it. We're committed to you 100%. But that's not what he says. He basically says, we'd love to leave, but we can't. You have the words of eternal life. Let me, let me read it to you. Verse 68 in John chapter 6, he says, Lord, to whom would we go? Where would we go? You've got the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. You know what he's saying? He's saying this. I love it. This is costly and hard. And there's been so many times when we just soon have left darn right but we don't have anywhere to go you have overtaken us we couldn't stop being your followers even if we wanted to jesus you got us you see how how in the world does he come to that answer because he's seen jesus he knows exactly he can't explain everything but he gets it And I think this is what Paul is saying right here. We got to discover that someone else has taken over our lives. That's what this has to do with us. And then are no longer even ours to sell to someone anymore. They're no longer yours to, to, to give away. When you discover that and that it's true, then you can be encouraged, right? That everything else that is promised in the gospel will be true for you too. And he will present you holy without blemish and blameless before his father. That's what it's got to do with us. That's what it's got to do with you. And it's amazing. I am struck by Paul's phrase right here towards the end, right? That in the midst of all of this, he says, the Lord wants first place. He wants first place so that he himself may become first in all things. All things. And, and, and can, you, can you illustrate that, that God wants first place? I mean, do I really need to go through illustration? That's what he wants. That's what he deserves. He wants first place. He should come first in everything that we do. If you get your arms around just who Jesus is, he wants first place in everything that we do. And, and so, so, so look, there are rivals to first place. 
There's rivals to first place, aren't there? Isn't that where the battle is all the time? There are other points of view, deceptions, temptations, all kinds of stuff. There's things that can replace Jesus's importance in our lives. And we, we're like that dog in, um, you know, did you ever see that little movie, that cartoon movie called Up? And the dog that's got the little collar around him that interprets and puts it in the language and he's always like, squirrel, right? Oh man, that is us. If you've seen that, if you haven't seen that movie, you need to go see it just for that. If we would only see clearly and embrace genuinely the person, the nature, and the role of Jesus, that's Christology, that's the doctrine of Christ. And that he must come to have first place and all these other things shouldn't even be listened to. That's what it's got to do with us. Oh, I think you should go back and read this. Take your shoes off too when you do it. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? Bow your head with me. Thank you, Lord. This is, this is a piece of scripture that takes some grappling with and kind of takes some work, but man, it's about everything is contained right here. Everything. It's no wonder Paul put it right here right after he prayed. This is the kind of stuff that keeps you on track, that gives perspective, that helps weed out every, anything and everything else that's not important. Now we think it's so important. This is it. This is Jesus plus nothing. Lord God, I am in awe of your plan, your design, and the sacrifice and your love and care for us, including us in this whole thing. Thank you for Paul's letter to this church. Help us to embrace it and absorb it now, Lord. Because we know that without Jesus, we're dead. It's just we're headed for death. But you made a way for us. Just like we're singing today, you made a way where there was no way. And we believe you're gonna do it again. Do it in the lives of our family and our neighbors and our, our community and the world that we live in. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Vail Christian Church Podcast. Join us next week as Pastor Ben takes us further into the great mystery. If you have any questions or would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.bailchristian.com.